This is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly games club podcast discussing the worlds and workings of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And this month we're talking about Brogue, or at least two of us are. Um, the uh, Brogue is a old, old wooden ship, uh, as I recall. No, it's a, it's a roguelike game. Uh, in the style of the classic 1980s rogue, but developed in 2009. Uh, Which is one of the youngest roguelikes out there, if I do remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. This is a game with ancient roots uh, that has, uh, you know, sort of grown its way all the way up into present day with lots of roguelikes and roguelites running around all over the indie and even in some of the more mainstream uh, gaming scenes these days. They certainly are having a bit of a renaissance right now. Seems you can't shake a stick on the Steam store without hitting a roguelike or two. It's definitely true, and I think uh, that's one of the main reasons we wanted to play this game, Brogue, um, because it, it is apparently a, a more faithful uh, descendant of the original Rogue, being that it is in the original sort of ASCII style. It's just a, a bog-standard dungeon crawl where you're descending 26 floors to retrieve an amulet and return it to the surface. Now, for those of you who have never played Rogue before or any of the games like that in the roguelike category, uh, the basic idea is you are an adventurer of some sort wandering around in a procedurally generated dungeon. So the dungeons are never the same thing uh, each time you play the game. Uh, other common factors to all of them you have permadeath where if you're on level 56 or whatever and the dragon chomps you then you're on level one now starting back at the beginning there's no real saving and reloading from a save point when you meet an untimely demise um another thing that's kind of common with the uh with the roguelikes is unidentified magic items or potions or whatnot so that uh you have to try them out to figure out what they do, and sometimes they're good things, and sometimes they're bad things that you don't really know until you uh, take a quaff that of that potion. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of different, you know, characteristics that really make for a rogue or roguelike game, and uh, you know, Brogue displays a lot of them. Uh, I think one of the things it's better known for in the roguelike genre, which has a pretty big following, is the fact that it's yeah, streamlined and simple compared to some of the more baroque roguelikes um or rogue games uh it still does feature uh, all the things josh said randomization uh a strong you know sort of interactions between the various mechanics and components of the game turn-based gameplay grid-based gameplay you know these types of things that you know your your standard roguelike is expected to have but it's uh it's very much brought into well, at least the 20th century, if not the 21st. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, very true. It's um, very simple without losing any of that kind of essence of the rogue. So you have only two statistics in the game. You have strength and you have hit points. That's all of it. No intelligence, no dexterity. Um, just the strength is what weapons and armor you can wear and your health. Well, that's your health. How much damage you can soak up. Uh, there's no leveling, there's no experience systems, just those two things. Yeah, and because of that, you're mainly getting by on the, the types of items you pick up, and increasingly the main power you have is really the knowledge of what the different things in the game world do. Uh, everything, is, as you Josh mentioned, starts off unidentified. You have no idea what that red potion in your inventory does, or that pink potion, or that 
metal staff or that you know steel rod or whatever it is and uh, over the course of time you can either identify these items through you know using them uh, which is one of the more dangerous ways to do it or by uh, getting a scroll of identify which of course you'd have had to identify it in the first place to use <laughs> and let it be known too that you get maybe two or three of these scrolls of identify in your entire run which your run will usually be short yeah, that's true. I, I feel like one of the main things that, uh, for me, set me off on a good path is uh, how many good things I identified right off the bat and how many bad things I identified without letting them kill me. And there are many things that can kill you in this, from uh, an innocent-looking potion that actually makes you catch on fire to scrolls that instead of enchanting your broadsword, instead summon all the monsters on the level right next to you. Yeah, I had a particularly bad situation where I, I tried to identify a potion over some greenery, and it just turned out that it uh, caught everything around me on fire and immediately burned me to death. I had, um, I remember one moment, like your moment in the flames, where I was standing on a rope suspension bridge. I shot a staff of fireball out at some goblins that were nearby, and... As the fire flames were shooting over there, it caught the bridge on fire, and I fell down to the next level after that. So it was an unexpected way that the level interaction kind of happened, uh, that you interacted with the environment. And I think that's something this game did really well. Yeah, it definitely does. The, the mechanical interactions, despite being fairly simple and like able to be sussed out fairly easily compared to some other roguelikes I've, I've played, um, are rich. And there's there's enough of them and enough unexpected ones that, that keep things very interesting. Um, it's funny, you know, we're talking about the use of potions and food and, well, I guess now I'll just bring up food, but the main one of the main things you're doing here to actually progress is resource management and in addition to sort of the the normal resources like the health and charges for your magic items i guess uh knowledge is another sort of resource that you're 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 stockpiling over the course of the game and i think that's that's kind of a a thing with roguelikes you know there's it's definitely one of those things where you're getting the idea that you're you have permadeath and everything is sort of continually at the same level every run can technically be the same the main thing that's changing is you yeah absolutely and i think one of the interesting kind of corollaries to that uh between having the permadeath and uh between that kind of knowledge experience sort of thing is that you know as you get to the deeper levels you get to a level that you've never been to before you see an enemy you haven't seen before you see some situation and you're like ah oh, snap i'm dead this is kind of trepidation you have there that you don't know what's going to go on and you have this a lot of tension because things are extremely dangerous in this game and they will kill you quickly if you don't know how to counter them or how to best fight them off yeah definitely uh it not only that but there's I guess just certain things to keep that you learn to keep an eye out for, like uh, you you learn to maybe always test a potion in water because uh, <laughs> you won't have a chance of burning to death, or you learn um, that. Well, I learned that one of the most uh, valuable things I could get was a potion of detect magic because it would instead of just being completely random what uh, the scroll I read or the potion I quaffed did, it would at least tell me if it was going to be good, benign, or terrible. Um, 
you know, harmful, <laughs> which uh, was a good thing to know uh, when you're low on health and hoping that whatever staff you just picked up is going to save your butt and not, you know, turn it to ash. <laughs> That's right. And then I, I thought one of the interesting things with this game, too, which I don't know if I've seen in all the roguelike games I've played, uh, but the potions, the bad potions that you have, you know, the ones that set you on fire or release toxic gas all around you when you try to drink them, you can throw those at enemies instead. So even the uh, even the bad resources, I think with a couple of exceptions, all the items that are bad do have a use or they can be put to use if you know how to use them right. Yeah, the only thing I could I didn't think was actually useful are scrolls. Malignant scrolls, I don't think there's any use for. Uh, you could just chuck those. Um, uh, but yeah, you're right. You can throw a bad potion of fire explosions as a grenade, basically, and that's super useful uh, in certain situations. Um, another thing that I found interesting uh, mechanically and equipment-wise is the every piece of every weapon and piece of armor you get. Uh, comes completely unidentified but has a chance to either you know reveal a an enchantment or a rune uh once you've worn it for like what something crazy like fifteen thousand steps or something something like that that's that to me is also kind of neat you know you you learn what these items do through using them and unless you you know like we said earlier have that extremely rare scroll of identification which means you know, you're you're kind of making a bet early on. Like, I found this rapier on the second floor, and I'm just going to use it because, you know, maybe by level 7 it'll reveal itself to be a rapier of multiplicity and totally save my butt. Or it'll turn into a rapier of, you know, something terrible that kills you. I had a whip once. Uh, it was a cursed whip, so, you know, I couldn't get rid of it once I had it equipped. Um, and... It was a cursed runic, so it had this. It had a special power, which I was excited to see. But that special power was it multiplied the number of enemies on the screen. If you hit an enemy with it, there was a non. There was like a ten or fifteen percent chance that you would now be fighting two of those enemies instead of just one. That sounds awful. I, I had kind of the opposite, where I got a, a whip that was a, a whip of multiplicity that spawned. Uh, spectral weapons to fight on my behalf when I, I got it and that was extremely useful like basically they just became like a meat wall and I could you know more or less spawn those and just back up and let them do the dirty work if, if it was just me versus enemies I probably would have been pretty good in pretty good shape on that run but it turns out the environment has more ways than monsters to kill you and I just ended up uh, either drowning or falling to my death on that run <laughs> that'll happen that'll happen um so how far did you get? What's the farthest you've gotten in this? Yeah, so of the 26-floor the trek to get the amulet, I made it uh, all the way down to level 11 on my best run, so not particularly great. I got, <laughs> I got to level 16 uh, once, uh, 14 and 15 a couple of times. That's where it kind of gets to the mid-game is what I hear. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so did you ever uh, manage to get a follower Yes, I've um, I've had several. I mean, you find follower monk like ally monkeys early on in the game pretty easily. But uh, I had some good ones. I had a uh, uh, you know the go mystic goblins, the ones that cast shield on everyone. Um, I had a couple of ogres a few times, and that's when I had one of the uh, there was one of the cursed ones or bad bad ones that multiplies the enemy well if you use that on your ally it multiplies your allies so that worked out well in that case and then there was um 
I got a couple of like legendary allies too, a unicorn and a, gosh, what was it? It was um, a phoenix that would come back from the dead once it was killed. That's fancy. I never uh, managed to get uh, any followers of any note, unfortunately, you know, just a monkey for me. But uh, it seemed like a pretty cool little system that uh, honestly, I didn't know this game even had for most of the time I played it. I started seeing like notes on the wiki about followers. And I was like, followers? That's even a thing you can do. (laughs) Uh, So that was that was kind of a cool reveal. And I you know, immediately set out to like see if I could figure out how to make use of that, and I couldn't because you know this game has other plans for me when I want to get far enough to get a follower. That's a, I think one of the hallmarks of a good roguelike is that you're going to have a lot of um, surprises, uh, pleasant surprises where you didn't know that one system would interact with another system this way, or um, just doing things like oh, you can have followers, you can do these things now, and they'll help you out. Yeah, whenever you have that, I guess the the randomness, unanticipated good things, you you always have a chance for that really great run when you kick off a new, you know, iteration of a roguelike. That that hope for the next great run is kind of what keeps you coming back. It's kind of like golf in that way. You're probably gonna do shit, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a chance you'll hit that real good tee shot on the 18th hole and you'll come back for more. If I'm thinking about, like, what made Brogue in particular a fun experience for me, you know, out of all the other roguelikes I've, rogue, rogue games or roguelikes I've played, um, it had a couple sort of ease-of-use things that made it more palatable to me. I know you, uh, Grok, with the ASCII art, just fine with all of your, you know, Dwarf Fortress-ness and stuff like that, but it's still a bit of a stretch for me. You know, ASCII art to me is a low-usability thing, and I don't dig games with low usability, but... This game's ASCII art is better than most. I think it's pretty parsable. And on top of that, they added some quality of life things like that auto-explore button, which is a lifesaver. Yeah, that's um, like you're going through the first couple of levels. You can just hit that button. It'll uh, explore. It'll attack a nearby monster. um, And you can just kind of pay half attention to see if anything interesting happens. Yeah, it's sort of like an admission that like the first couple levels are going to be your make or breaks but they're also kind of just like a rote exercise after a while like all right am i gonna get a cool staff am i gonna get a a neat weapon am i gonna be able to identify enough potions to make this a run worth continuing on for or am i just gonna you know die and restart and the auto explore button lets you you know for lack of a better word churn through a bunch of those uh early stages in a a pretty like painless way there's also like a rest until heal button which you know resting's kind of a double-edged sword but it still beats just holding the space bar until you're better or whatever <laughs> and what's nice about the rest until healed is that if something happens like a kobold runs up to you or a goblin pops out of into view then it automatically stops the rest until healed and says hey something's happening what you what you want to do it's just very nice in that like it'll warn you if you're you drink a potion of levitation and you're flying over some lava pit and you're about to run out of it. It's like, uh, you should probably get back to land now. <laughs> I didn't know that it would do that, but that is good to know. Um, oh, I guess I did. I had a situation where I had a um, fire immunity potion and it would warn me when I was walking over lava that I should probably, you know, not be over lava when it wore off. So that was helpful. Yeah, same deal, same deal. And, and you know what? To the best of its ability, the auto-explore thing does that as well. Um, the auto-explore actually taught me some stuff. Like, the auto-explore taught me that I could walk on lava when I had fire immunity. Ha! Huh. 
with this kind of <laughs> interesting, you know, the game was basically like, you know, you're an idiot that doesn't know this, so I'm going to throw you a bone here. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just one of those things, like like I said, you're, the, the knowledge you're bringing is sort of the main progression in this game, and, you know, I figured we could probably go into some roguelike generalities here for a bit, but um, in in my opinion... Uh, the sort of permadeath, lack of progression, and for lack of a better word, you know, static difficulty curve basically means, like, the game's not going to get any harder, you're just going to get better at it, uh, which is kind of a neat inversion of how, you know, we normally play games. Normally, you're, like, you can you can spend enough time to grind out um, things that will make an experience in a video game easier to the point where you get past it. Uh, roguelikes basically say, we don't got no time for that, you're either going to be good enough to surpass this or you're not, and you're going to need to acquire some knowledge that will allow you to be so on your next run. Yeah, that's... Um, I'd say roguelikes in general, there's exceptions to this too, but in general, they are anti-grind. Um, this game's a good example of it in two ways. First of all, killing monsters doesn't do anything for you. Monsters don't give you experience, they don't give you treasure or items or anything like that. Um, they just take away resources and time from you. And second, uh, this is more common across different roguelikes too, but there's time pressure on you to keep moving and keep moving downwards. In this case, it's the food clock. You only have so much nutrition, uh, and if you run out, then you have to, you starve to death, and there goes the game. Um, and the, the only way to get more food is to keep going deeper. There's no sitting around at higher levels and grinding out, beating up on goblins until you feel like you're strong enough to go down a few levels. It's a waste of time, and the roguelikes in general, and this one in particular, says, we don't need that. Ain't got no time for that. <laughs> exactly. You can't pull a South Park and sit in the training area killing boars until you're level 99. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you will have long since withered away to bones. Uh, but yeah, I think it's good. In that way, Like, and this is a thing that I love in all types of games, not just roguelikes. It really respects your time. Um, the a, to- a term that I, I saw coined while researching Rogue and its descendants is the coffee break roguelike, um, which... Uh, give me more of those. I love coffee breaks and I love roguelikes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think this is a good example of the coffee break roguelike where you can just jump in, do a run. It's not going to, you know, unless you're doing real well, it's probably not going to last more than a half an hour. And, um, you know, then you get back to your life. Or you spend another four or five hours doing more runs. I got pretty <laughs> into this game. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, and, you know, with the randomness and... Um, you know, basically every, every run has identical difficulty, but completely different experiences. So you're not going to like run out of, of levels to try or things to experience in a, a game like this. There's more permutations there than, um, you'll ever see for sure. Yeah. By the time you got, by the time you like master the first levels, then, um, you can go through those without thinking, but then you're coming to against new tactical situations on the lower levels that you might not have a solid handle on yet. And eventually you get to the levels you haven't been to before where, again, you're you're being very careful as you walk around and making sure you got escape routes and all sorts of survival strategies. You're in survival mode at that point. And, you know, while I've never played the original Rogue, I think that type of 
you know, situation that you find yourself in and, and that type of progression, you know, within a run is something that the original Rogue had and all the roguelikes that follow it from Brogue to Spelunky to, you know, FTL and beyond are, they do sort of try and do that, basically. You know, there is, despite the fact that there is, you know, a flat difficulty curve for the game, there is still a difficulty curve within the game, and it does throw different things at you at different points in your quote-unquote playthrough, however long it may last. You know, overall, I I kind of enjoy the fact that the roguelike has become a thing, and I don't actually remember when this first happened in, you know, modern gaming that, that I've been involved in over the last, you know, couple years in terms of playing games, but do you remember what sort of, you know, sounded the comeback for roguelikes? Was it, was it Spelunky? Maybe, maybe. I'm not sure if Spelunky was influential enough, I guess. In, in my opinion, it was sort of the first, like, big, you know, success that was like, this is a, a permadeath game, you know, you're going to do these, I guess permadeath is the main thing I'm latching onto here, and procedural generation. And it seems like in the wake of that, you know, I've played a, a whole buttload of games like that in the, the past couple of years that sort of, you know, continue to riff on that. And I think Spelunky sort of opened the floodgates for it, you know. Then there was Crypt of the Necrodancer, Enter the Gungeon, Risk of Rain, Rogue Legacy, um, you know, all the way up till the very recent, like Into the Breach, Dead Cells. Those games ended up on a lot of people's games of the year in 2018, um, for good reason, of course. But they do sort of have a lot of those like strong roguelike identifying factors that we talked about: permadeath, random generation, um, exploration and discovery, bringing knowledge and a flat difficulty curve to the situation, and you know, letting you be the experience points, quote unquote. Not every game goes all out with permadeath. Sometimes it's like a light version of that. Like I'm thinking Rogue Legacy, which for me, that was uh, the game. I I wasn't the biggest fan of the game. I thought it was a good game, but uh, nothing special. Um, That's that's when I remember thinking that Rogue Likes and Rogue Lights, because that was definitely a Rogue Light, had definitely become mainstream. We're no longer such a niche market. I agree with you there. And um, the one thing about Rogue Legacy that, you know, subverts something of value in roguelikes that we talked about just before is that it did have persistent upgrades, which means, you know, while there was permadeath within a run, there were persistent upgrades outside of a given run. And what that did was it broke the no grinding rule. And immediately that meant that you had to grind a succession of runs to build up those permanent progression points and uh, to me that that did turn the situation into a bit more of a grind than your traditional roguelikes such as broke i think there is that and also the lack of any meaningful time pressure in that game um to me those are the two things that well the permadeath is probably more than that but you know we have definitely our own indie game renaissance of roguelikes and roguelites but there's a cat on my computer this is kind of a, uh, a roguelike recording session for you where you never know what the cats are going to throw at you next. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. The cats are stuck in this office with me right now just because we got some art projects drying outside on the tables where they will definitely get to if we let them out. So they wow. are taking being cooped up not very well. But one of the things I was thinking of was you can take a look at how rogue and its descendants have influenced a lot of other games like the one that comes to mind first is diablo 
that has a very roguelike lineage, like the original Diablo, where you have dungeon crawlers through a randomly generated um, dungeon. You have unidentified magic items that you have to have identified before they can be put to use. Um, it did change a lot of things. It went graphical which, instead of ASCII, which I think that's fine. It wasn't turn-based anymore. Sure, that's fine, too. And um didn't have to be permadeath. You could have Iron Man mode, but I feel like Diablo was never really permadeath. It didn't expect you to die as much um, as a typical roguelike does. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a strong legacy there. I mean, and, and by Diablo 2, it was almost you know, completely gone because they, they found some other mechanical, you know, hooks that they liked better and, and sort of built on those. But there is still a little bit of that DNA in there all the way up to, you know, random stage generation and uh, random weapons and items, like all that, the randomization aspect of Diablo is all the way there in, you know, Diablo 3. Um, and sometimes those procedural things like that you know it's it's funny now that you mention it thinking back that that probably all did sort of stem from the creators being really big fans of roguelikes back in the glory days of net hack and all that yep uh, i think we can move on to the three words for me i'll give this game two thumbs up uh they get lost in this game quite a bit i definitely put at least as much time into this as i did hitman even though hitman 2 is like triple a game great game a lot of fun to play and Rogue is a 10-year-old roguelike. Um, just as fun to play for me. Uh, two thumbs up. My three-word review for that is Pile of Corpses, because that is what I have to show for all my efforts at Brogue. Never got down to level 26 to escape with the amulet of Yendor, or whatever it was, uh, but I left a whole trail of adventurer bodies along the way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we both did. Um for me, this is definitely a, a, a huge thumbs up. I had stumbled on this game a long time back uh, as it had an iOS release, and I was hungry for roguelikes on my uh, my iPad a while back. Uh, this makes a great plane game, by the way. But um, revisiting it on the PC uh, really solidified it for me in um, sort of the the upper echelons of of roguelike you know, pure, more pure roguelikes that I have played. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It's not one of those games that I see myself like normally seeking out due to, you know, production value reasons. I guess I'm a shallow person uh, when it comes to game looks, but, um, he likes pretty <laughs> things. I do. Yeah. What can I say? Uh, shallow, I'm a shallow hell for nice looking video games, but in my opinion, this game and my three word view is a streamlined classic. Because uh, it, it really brings all of the classic elements of, of Rogue into a, a roguelike game. And it streamlines them just enough to make them palatable for me while still maintaining uh, all of that classic goodness. If you're looking to get a ro- into roguelikes, see what roguelikes are all about, this is probably the most approachable one I've played. Uh, and it's a very distilled version of all the things I like about roguelikes. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, uh, you know, with that, we'll uh, leave the dungeon in Brogue behind us, you know, both having failed at uh, retrieving the Amulet of Yendor. Uh, Hopefully someone else out there is going to manage to get it on our behalf. But until that time, next month we will be playing Into the Breach. Uh, We mentioned that in in this uh, conversation a little bit, but it's a roguelike tactical experience that... Uh, you know, maybe borrows a little bit of that rogue DNA that we've been talking about so much. Um, 
So, for Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Kalecki. Take it easy, video games. Music